like to invite you to go ahead and find a seat, and we're going to get rolling this morning. I'd like to ask you a question this morning. I'm going to say a word, and I'd like you to kind of internally gauge, when I say that word, how you respond to it. What does that word make you think? What does that word make you feel? Okay? Ready? The word is family. Family. When I say family, what kind of comes to mind for you? What emotions does that raise? Does it raise positive emotions and reactions and memories? Memories of love and acceptance and protection and provision and nurturing? Does it raise negative reactions, negative emotions of rejection, abandonment, unmet needs, criticism, or belittling? You know, I would imagine in this room this morning, we've had both reactions. Some on one side, some on the other, and a whole lot of in-between with a mixture. During the first 25 years of my life, I considered it my job to figure out who God was and how life works. And God brought many wonderful people into my life to kind of help me figure that out. During the second 25 years of my life, God blessed me with a wonderful wife and three children. And Sharon and I were then tasked with the job of helping these three children figure out how life works. And we just considered that all of the experiences of our life those years would be opportunities where we would try to help these three youngsters kind of figure out how life worked. And we certainly did not do a perfect job. We made a lot of mistakes along the way. But we were always looking for teachable moments, you know, for opportunities to affirm something done right, to correct something done wrong, to encourage, to communicate to clarify, to explain. And somewhere along the way, early on, we came up with an acronym. We took our last name and we made an acronym out of it. We called it the Binkley Family Values. Now, if we were Europeans, I suppose we would have made, you know, some kind of crest with lions and flags and things. But we're not Europeans, we're Americans, so we made an acronym. And our acronym went like this. B stands for be courageous, do the right thing. I stands for integrity, be honest. N stands for need for kindness. K, keep yourself pure. L, love and serve God. E, everything, in everything give thanks. Y, your best, always do your best. S, share with others. So those were just a little teaching tool that we had. And if you were to come over to our house today, you'd still see that hanging on the wall. Just one of those many little things that parents do to try to help their kids figure out what family's about, how family works. And we were trying to teach three little kids named Michelle, Ryan, and Chris what it means to be a part of the family. This is who we are. This is how we do family. And I'm sure if we had time, we could go around the room and hear a lot of interesting stories if you're a parent on the the ways that you have tried to teach your kids, this is who we are, this is how we do family. In a very similar way, that's exactly what Paul's doing in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Paul is a spiritual father and he's talking to his spiritual children in the Roman church and he's saying, 
This is how we do family. This is how we do spiritual family. Now, if you've been with us the last couple weeks in chapter 14, you know that he's really been talking in 14 about this is how we don't do spiritual family. So 14 was kind of hitting the negative. In 14, he was saying we do not do spiritual family by judging each other, by rejecting one another over insignificant issues. We don't do family by being divisive and argumentative in ways that cause each other to trip and to stumble. We don't do family by tearing each other down and criticizing other, each other over things that, quite honestly, really don't even matter to God. But in 15, he's really turned the corner now and he's going positive. And he says, let's take some time and talk about how we do do spiritual family. Let's take a look at it in 15.1. Now, he who is strong ought to bear with the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we kind of unpack that text this morning, I see Paul giving us four life-giving principles that answer the question, how are we supposed to do spiritual family here at LCF? His first principle is this. In the family, we use our strengths to build up others. Verse 1, now we who are strong ought to bear with the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Now this verse raises a couple questions. Number one, it's talking about two groups. He's talking about the weak and he's talking about the strong. So who are these groups? R.C. Sproul explains it this way. Paul writes that some believers are weak. The weak believer is the one who fears to make use of some good gift that God has given to mankind and to the church. In Paul's day, the weak believer was afraid to eat meat and drink wine that had been used in rituals offered to sacrifice to idols. If a man believes that it is sin to eat meat and he goes ahead and eats it, he has sinned. He has sinned not because he's eaten meat, but because he has done something he believes God has forbidden. His intention was to disobey God. Because of this, Paul says that the strong Christians are to be careful not to lead weak Christians into sin by encouraging them to go against their consciences. Paul admonishes us not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in a brother's way. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. How might I cause my weaker brother to fall, he continues, by flaunting my liberty in such a way as to encourage him to act against his conscience. If, on the other hand, I eat or drink in private without violating my conscience, I've offered no offense. The weaker brother may not like my doing it, but I have not encouraged him to sin. So what Paul and R.C. Sproul are saying there is there's a reality here. And the reality that we have to understand is that in the church, there will always be people at different stages or levels of development. We're all here together, 
but we're all at different stages or levels of development. And if we don't handle that right, it can cause problems, the problems of chapter 14. Do you remember the cure for the problems of chapter 14? It was put this way. The cure is recognizing that God has accepted you, so don't condescend or condemn, brothers and sisters. The cure was recognizing that Christ is Lord, so don't ignore your convictions or neglect your conscience. Be true to what God is doing in your life and where you are at in your developmental stages. The cure was recognizing that we're family, so we don't cast people away and criticize them because they're family. And the cure was recognizing that judgment is coming, but Christ is the one on the bench, so we don't really need to climb up on the bench and offer to be many judges or assistant judges. He's going to handle that one just fine. A second question this verse kind of addresses is, what are you supposed to do with the strength that God has given to you? Let me tell you about a trip that we frequently make. We have four grandkids, two sets of two, and when we're watching those and the weather's nice, it's very common that we'll take a little trip to a park that's about three-fourths of a mile from our house. It goes like this. We load up the wagon with the grandkids. Papa pulls the wagon. The grandkids are in. Sharon walks behind doing quality control, making sure nobody gets hurt, and we arrive with the same number that we left with. We get to the park. They get out of the wagon, play about 20, 25 minutes, get back in the wagon, and we go home. We've done this hundreds of times. Now, what would you think if I said, oh, you know, we, that's the way we usually do it. Let's mix it up a little. I got a new plan. Grandkids, would you like to go to the park? And, of course, they always answer that question with a yes. And I say, great, here's how we're going to do it. Uh, it's uh, about 1030 now. Let's meet there at 1040. So we're all going to meet at the park in 10 minutes. See you later. Go. And I just take off running. Now, I use the word running loosely. I'll get there. It's a joggy kind of thing, but it's not walking, but it's running. So I I take off running. Sharon takes off power walking behind me. And Eleanor and Caroline are in the front yard there looking at each other, looking at the wagon, trying to figure out how they're going to get to the park in 10 minutes. If they could walk that three-fourths of a mile, they would be so tired by the time they got there that they wouldn't even want to play in the park. They would probably not make it to the park. There's roads, there's cars, there's intersections, there's trails. You got to turn right and left at certain spots. They probably don't know the way. So that if they took off on their own, not only would they probably not make it there, they'd probably get lost. It could be potentially dangerous. If you were talking to me, you would probably say, Randy, I don't think that's a very good idea. In fact, I think it's a bad idea because it would never work. And I, I would agree with you. You would be right. That would not be a good plan. That would not work. But I'd also like to say, is it possible that maybe some of you here this morning are doing exactly that thing? You're saying, you know, I've heard the gospel. I'm saved. That's great. See the rest of you in heaven. Meet you at the park. But maybe you're not mixing it up with your brothers and sisters in Christ here and now. You're not using the strength that God has put in your life to build up others Is it possible you're acting more like an only child instead of a child in the family of God with a lot of brothers and sisters? Instead of running to the park or heaven on your own, maybe God has strengthened you or enabled you somewhere to pull the wagon so that some others can get to the park also. Others that right now maybe aren't strong enough to get there on their own. 
And you know, the thing about the church is it's always dynamic. That's not always going to be that way. I mean, today I put Eleanor and Caroline in the wagon and I pull them. 20 years from now, they may be putting me in the wagon and pulling me. This is dynamic. These things change, okay? But you will always have the mix. And that we'll always have different places of development. Paul's point in Romans 15.1 is don't use your strengths to do your own thing and please yourself. Use your strengths for the good of others. Use it to edify. Use it to build others up. Another question this verse raises is, does this really apply to me? In other words, he was talking about the weak and the strong. And you might say, well, you know, if I had to put myself in one of those categories... I may not put myself in the spiritually strong category. I might say I'm spiritually weak, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, let's think about that for a minute. Let's clarify what it means to be strong. Strong doesn't mean perfect. Strong doesn't mean perfected. Strong doesn't mean complete. Strong here means one who is empowered, one who is experienced, one who's entrusted. So let's think for a minute about some areas where you might be strong and you could help others. Number one, you're strong in your area of spiritual gifting. Romans 12, 4 through 8 talked about this. We studied it a little earlier. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And then he lists some of them, teaching and giving and mercy and leading and exhorting, serving. You're strong in your area of gifting. You may not think that, but the reality is each of us has been given a spiritual gift if you're a part of the spiritual family. And when you use that area of gifting, whether that be in the church or in the community, it can be used both. When you use that, you actually are quite strong because you're gifted in that area. It may seem to you that this is just normal and everybody can probably do this, but in reality, that's not true. When you are exercising and acting in your area of spiritual gifting, you are stronger than the other 90% of the people in this room. If that's showing mercy, if that's leading, if that's teaching, if that's serving, when you're using your gift, you're, you're in an area of strength, a strength that can help others. Another area you can be strong in is life experiences. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You have had some, some struggles. You have had some challenges in your life. And if you have processed through those challenges with God's help and God's grace, as you have come out the other side, you have learned some valuable things. And there could be other people in this body. There are other people in this body. And you may have processed through that challenge five, ten years ago, and they're just starting on the very front end of it. And it looks a little overwhelming to them. You could apply your life experiences to them in such a way that that's bringing strength to weakness. If you were to come up to me afterwards and say, Randy, would you pray for me? Because we're trying to adopt and we're going through the process and it's frustrating and it's hard and it's long and, uh, uh, you know, we just need some help. Well, I, I would certainly be willing to pray for you and, and I would certainly try to empathize with, uh, with your experience. But we haven't adopted, so I don't have that experience. What I might say to you is, you know, I will pray for you, but you know what? 
I have a friend and he's adopted three children and, and they've gone through all that and, and they're just doing a fantastic job with that. And it might be valuable to you to, to talk to them, to meet with them. They might be a wonderful resource person for you. You know, why don't you call them up and see if they want to have a cup of coffee. You're strong in your area of life experiences. You're also strong in your areas of gifted stewardship. James 1.17 says, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, for whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Here's the reality. God in His nature and character is good. He is good. And so when He looks at His children, He is not stingy. He's not an Ebenezer Scrooge. He looks at His children and He is generous. In fact, it says in Psalm 84, God says, every good thing I will give to my children. If we are the children of God, God is giving us every good thing. Not some good things, not a few good things, every good thing. So we have these good things that God has given to us in our life. They're gifts from God. Maybe you have the gift of physical health. Maybe you use that gift to build up someone who is weak or who is weary or who is sick. Maybe God has given you the gift of financial strength. And you could use that to build up someone who is needy or poor or struggling in that area. Maybe God has given you the gift of a loving home and you could use that to build up someone who is homeless or a foster child or an orphan. Maybe God's given you the gift of emotional stability. I mean, you just stay the course. And you could use that to build up someone who's unstable or confused or losing a battle with some addiction. In the family, we use our strengths to build up others. You know, no physical family is perfect, is it? I grew up in a family that was a good family. It wasn't a perfect family, but it was a good family. I sought to father my family, and I hope that they would say that it's a good family. It wasn't a perfect family, but I hope they would consider it a good family. Forty-five years ago, I came to faith in Christ, and since that time, I've had the chance to be uh, a part of seven different spiritual families, churches. Not a one of those spiritual families has been perfect, but you know what? They've all been very good. All families will face challenges, and because of that, God has put within those families people and areas of strength. Fake family members respond to those challenges by stepping out to find an easier path. True family members respond to those challenges by stepping up to meet the need. Why do they do that? Because in the family, we use our strengths to build up others. You know, every morning I have a very important decision I have to make. I have to decide which belt to wear. Oh, don't laugh. This is important. If I wear the wrong one, my wife will criticize me. She will bring it to my attention. Wrong belt. I once went to a small group with a shirt that she didn't think matched my pants. I heard about that one many times. But I have a couple belts. I have a black belt. The black belt is what I, I wear when I'm putting on a suit or dress pants. I have a brown belt. I usually wear the brown belt when I'm uh, wearing jeans or something like that. But I also have another belt I wear sometimes, and, and that's this one. This is my tool belt. So sometimes I wear this belt. Now I like this belt. It might even be my favorite belt of belts. But I put the tool belt on when it's time to build something. The 
tool belt's a great belt. It allows me to carry some things that I'm going to need to build something. So I get up there and I, you know what? I got what I need. Don't have to run back down the ladder and get something else. It's a great little belt. But it's a belt I put on when it's time to build something. My son Ryan is finishing off his uh, unfinished basement, so the day after Thanksgiving on Friday, a couple of us went over to give him a hand. We were going to build some walls. You know what belt I decided to wear that day? Well, I decided to wear my tool belt because that was the belt of the day. It was time to build something. It was time to frame some walls. Let me ask you a question. Did you put the right belt on this morning when you dressed? What belt do you wear when you gather with your spiritual family? When you gather here for worship, when you gather in your small group, when you gather in that Bible study you're a part of, when you gather in that prayer group you belong to, when you gather in that men's discipleship group or women's discipleship group, what what belt are you wearing to that event? That's the time for us as believers to be wearing our tool belts when we meet together as family. Because according to this verse, that's the time to be building something, to be building up others. One of the greatest places to build is in in some form of a small group. And if you're not in one of those, I'd encourage you, when January rolls around, you get past Christmas, find one, anything. Small group Bible study, one of the small groups of the church, a men's group, women's group, anything. Just get in one of the small groups and wear your tool belt. And I think you'll just be amazed at the building that can happen, not only in your own life, but in others. It's a place where we do building. Why? Because in the family, that's what we do. We use our strengths to build up others. Let's take a look at a second thing Paul teaches us about being in the family, and that's in the family, we keep our eyes on Jesus, our example. 15.3 is turning our attention and our gaze back to Jesus. You know, one of the questions that will jump into our mind if we try to do the first principle is this. Well, why? Why should I use my strengths to build up others? I mean, I could use my strengths to make my life rather comfortable. I could use my strengths to make some more money. I could use my strengths to make a name for myself and become a big shot. Why would I use my strengths to build up others? And the answer to that question is because that's what Jesus, our example, did. And if we're truly following him, that's what we will be doing also. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says this, Therefore... Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and every sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. You notice what the main point was there? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why is that important? Because what captures your gaze will capture your thoughts. What captures your thoughts will capture your desires. What captures your desires will capture your behavior. Let me illustrate. Let's say this morning, sitting up here on the podium, I have a freshly made crispy cream glazed donut. And it's just sitting there. And I start to kind of glance at it. And it, it, it looks fresh. It looks warm. It's got this beautiful glazed sugar all around it and I begin to look at it and I begin to think about it and the thoughts turn to desire and desire turns to behavior and before long I'm standing up here eating glazed donuts. But let's say 
Instead of looking at that glazed donut, I turn over and I look at you. And, and I begin to think, what you're here for? And what I'm here for? And what we're here for? And my gaze controls my thoughts, controls my desire, which controls my behavior, and we get back to teaching the message. Gaze is important. In Romans 14, some in the church were not fixing their eyes on Jesus. They were looking around. They were looking at each other. They were looking at other things. They were comparing. They were contrasting. And where did that lead them? Well, it led them to a point where they were judging and rejecting each other, where they were complaining, they were condemning, they were divisive, they were argumentative. And how did they get there? Well, they stopped fixing their eyes on Jesus. It's just that simple. Notice in Hebrews 12 some of the benefits that come into our life when we fix our eyes on Jesus. Number one, it says we get to avoid the entanglements of sin that so easily trip you up. You know those little things that just seems like they're just sins that you just keep stumbling over again and again and again, and it goes through your mind, why have I not learned how to get beyond this one? But you just keep tripping over some of the same stuff. Well, Hebrews 12 is saying if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can actually walk over those things and not stumble over those things. We can run our race with endurance, it says. Not only can we start off with good intentions and the right direction, but as we start off, we can actually find that we have stamina. We have staying power. We can stay the course. We can keep going, not just start well. It also says another benefit is you're enabled to overcome some short-term pain by joyfully anticipating the long-term gain, just like Jesus did. We learn the value of deferred gratification. We make the better hard choices instead of the easier cheap choices. And it also says you get renewed strength and hope along the way. You know, we have some great brothers and sisters in Christ here at LCF, but don't fix your eyes on them. We have a great staff here at LCF, but don't fix your eyes on them. Got a nice mission statement out there in the lobby, but don't fix your eyes on that. We got some great ministries and programs going on, but don't fix your eyes on those. Got a nice facility we have here to meet in and be nice and warm on a cold day, but don't fix your eyes on that. Because in the family, we keep our eyes on Jesus, our example. A third thing Paul teaches us about what it means to be in the family and life in the family is this. In the family, we learn to recharge with God's word. Verse 4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. How many of you have had this experience? You run over to the Sprint store, you buy a new iPhone 10, whatever, you pay a whole lot of money for it, and yeah, you're excited, you bring it home, you charge it up. Let's say you charge it Saturday night, so Sunday morning you unplug it and you start using it, and you're learning the features, you're playing with it, you like your new phone. But on Tuesday of that week, for some reason, it stops working. I mean, it won't even turn on. You get nothing. I mean, there's no phone, there's no email, there's no playing with apps, there's no checking Facebook. It's just dead. Well, you're a little ticked off, to be honest, because you paid a lot of money for this thing. So you go back to that Sprint store and slightly irritated, you know, you explain, listen, here's the deal. I, I paid you a lot of money for this thing and I only got it last Saturday. I plugged it in and charged it Saturday night and uh, started using it Sunday. And by Tuesday, this thing is dead. I, I'm kind of upset about that. 
you need to fix this. And somewhere in that conversation, that representative might turn your attention or say something that kind of goes like this. Uh, You know, it might be possible that you're not understanding how this works. The phone isn't defective. This is what we would call user error. You seem to have failed to recharge it, to plug it in. It's not a problem with the phone. You're using it wrong. You know, it's good to to come here on Sunday mornings, isn't it? And it's good to hear the Word and to have someone prepare a 25, 30-minute teaching from the Word. But one 25-minute teaching from God's Word is not going to be enough to get enough spiritual nutrition to get you through the whole week. If that's your plan, you're going to be consistently spiritually malnourished by Tuesday or Wednesday. Physiologically, most of us require about 2,000 calories per day to sustain physical health and life. And in the same way, spiritually, we need about 2,000 calories of spiritual nutrition from God's Word each day to sustain spiritual health. Now, don't ask me to quantify what a spiritual calorie is. I can't, but I think you get the point, don't you? If we understand we need daily physical nutrition to stay healthy, should we not also understand that we need daily physical, spiritual nutrition, excuse me, to stay healthy also? That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? We need to learn to refuel with Scripture daily. Here's the deal. We kind of all want the product of the transformed life, don't we? But do you remember what Paul said was the process that produces that product? In Romans 12, 2, he said that the process that leads to the transformed life is the renewing of the mind. That means we are consistently replacing the lies that we have believed with the truth that God has revealed. Weekly listening is good, but it's no substitute for learning individually how to read and how to understand God's Word. Let's look at some of the benefits of learning to refuel with Scripture. Verse 4 mentions, number one, when we do that, we get instruction. We learn how life works and how things work. We get insight, application of wisdom to our world and our situation. We get perseverance, the staying power. We get encouragement. We get hope. Let me ask you a question. How would next week look different for you if you started each morning with a full tank of spiritual wisdom and insight for the day ahead? With a full charge of perseverance so that no matter what challenges came along, you had the power to move through them. A generous supply of encouragement in your spirit and an abundance of hope in your heart. Would that make a difference in your week? Well, this verse is saying, you know, we can have that. We should have that. It's part of learning to refuel daily with Scripture. In old writings, they called this a spiritual discipline learning to meet with God and, and to meet with Him in His Word. And, and if you've developed this spiritual discipline in your life, I don't really have to explain anything to you because you get it. You, you, you've experienced it, you know the value of it, and, and you're never going back. I mean, it's just a part of who you are. It's probably, for many of us, it becomes the sweetest part of our day. But I'm going to speak for a minute to those who might be in the room who, who just haven't been able to get that to work for them. Okay, you you've understood that it would be a good thing. You have you have desired to do it. You have tried a couple different times to do it with different ways, but it just never clicked. It's never worked for you. And and so in frustration, you've kind of thrown your hands up and said, I don't know, maybe it's just something that that that's for certain kinds of people. And I'm just not that kind of people. And so you quit trying. 
This is really not for certain kinds of people. This really is for all of us. But sometimes we've made it far more complex and difficult. And uh, it doesn't need to be that. Let me just speak to you if you've kind of thrown your hands up. This is for you, and it doesn't have to be hard. It can be really quite simple. Can I just explain how you might be able to start and get some traction with this in your life? Decide today, not tomorrow morning, decide today that for this next week, you're going to have a 10-minute appointment with God each morning before your day starts. 10 minutes. That's nothing. You can do 10 minutes. So that means you go home and you make plans accordingly. You go and you find your alarm clock. And whatever it's set for, you're going to move it 10 minutes earlier. And you find somewhere in your house in that morning time frame where you could have a quiet place to sit down. And next to that seat, you put your Bible and a notebook and a pen. So you decide your time. You set your alarm clock. You get your Bible and your notebook there. So what are you going to do with your 10 minutes? Well, you get up tomorrow morning and you sit down. You open that Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. You just read the chapter. Maybe you take that pen and you underline any verses or words or phrases that kind of stand out to you. Just read in one chapter. Did you know you can read a chapter in three, four minutes? So you got five minutes there just to kind of look at one chapter of God's Word, letting God speak to you through His Word and through His Spirit. And then you take that next five minutes after God's spoken to you through his word, and you just talk to him. Talk to God about what's going on with your day. Talk to God about the things you're worried about or anxious about or excited about. Talk to God about what you read in his word. Just 10 minutes. Five minutes of listening to God through his word. Five minutes of talking to God. Make whatever notes you want to in your little uh, your journal. And then just repeat. Tuesday chapter 2, Wednesday chapter 3. It's, it's really quite simple, isn't it? There's no reason all of us can't get traction on this. And if you were to do that, then seven days from today, one week today when you came back, you would have just finished John chapter 7. And you're going to just keep reading the next chapter. One chapter a day is a lot of God's Word. You don't, you don't need more than that. And you just, when you finish the book of John, you move to Acts, and you finish that, just follow through. And guess what? By the end of summer, you'll have finished reading most all the New Testament. But even more important than that, you will have developed a habit, a habit that is meeting with God listening to God and talking to God as the as a start of your day. That's learning how to refuel with Scripture. It's what we do as children of God. In the family, Paul also says we glorify God by living in unity. Now, we spent an entire month talking about unity just a little while back, so I'm not really going to spend much time on this one. But I'll just ask you a follow-up question. After all that teaching on living in unity, how's it going for you? Have you had some opportunities to apply those teachings are you seeing progress in your life in that area? Are you seeing some signs of fruit? You know, are you becoming a, a, more of a grace giver to those around you? You know, I've noticed some people, it seems like, feel like they have the spiritual gift of being an expectation auditor. You know, so they walk around with almost a little citation book, and they're just auditing everybody based on their expectations. So every day they let their spouse know how they did not meet my expectations, and then they come to church and they let the church know how it did not meet my expectations. And then they go to work and they let work and co-workers know how they did not meet my expectations. And then they let their children know how they did not meet my expectations. God doesn't really want us to be expectation auditors. He wants us to be grace givers because that's what creates unity. Grace givers. 
a unity builder, a unity protector. If you study Scripture, John 17, all through the Bible, you'll see that this is really important to God, unity. This is a really important thing, value, in regards to His family. Christians on mission experience unity and value it and protect it. And our unity is found in being recipients of God's grace, but then also extenders of God's grace to others. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, paint a picture of what walking in unity looks like. It says this, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord has forgave you, so also should you. That's what walking in unity, that's what living in unity looks like. So what is Paul saying about how we do family? Quite simple. Here's how we do family. Number one, in the family, we're going to use our strengths to build up others. In the family, we're going to keep our eyes on Jesus, our example. In the family, we're going to learn to recharge with God's word. And in the family, we're going to glorify God by living in unity. Let's go ahead and stand.